my name is Evan. I use he, him pronouns. My name is Ian, and I use they, them pronouns. My name is Kate, and I use she, her pronouns. And this is If the Shoe Fits. It's a podcast about Romeo and Juliet stories and their sequels, question mark? And jukebox musicals. And jukebox musicals. But first, we're here with Kate. Tell us a bit about yourself and your experience with Romeo and Juliet. Yeah, sure. So I am a theater artist, and I... Let's see, in 1996, I believe, when Baz Luhrmann's Romeo and Juliet came out, I was 11 or 12. Mm -hmm. And I saw it and, you know, Leo was at, it was prime Leo. Peak Leo, yeah. (laughs) And and I fell in love with this movie. It was like maybe one of the first movies I also cried at. Like I remember like getting emotional watching the movie. And so then like any preteen girl, I became obsessed with it. My friends and I like bought copies of William Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet to like read in school. So that was the beginning of my love affair with Romeo and Juliet. And then later I I was a teacher for a little while after I graduated from uh, undergrad and I got to co-direct a production at a high school of Romeo and Juliet. And I also would sometimes teach my middle school students about Romeo and Juliet, really to talk about adaptation, you know, which is interesting for this podcast. Uh-huh. Um, but we, but you know, we would talk about the story, and then I would introduce them to West Side Story and how you know old material could be used to create new material. So I just know the show very, very well, and before, because of all of these iterations, it's possibly my favorite play of all time. Um, and then in Chicago about, oh God, I guess it's been like four or five years now. I actually did another production of Romeo and Juliet where I adapted the script to, um, I, I turned it into a musical. I took like, we kept the Shakespearean text and I added pop music and I turned it into a music. Like, there's no other way to say it. I wanted to make a Romeo and Juliet musical and I did. And I loved it. I, I wouldn't thought <laughs> that's, that's why I wanted to talk to you today is because I remember it. No, it's like, that's a fun way to adapt the story. And, and it was a really good time. And fitting for today's episode. And very fitting for today's episode. Yes. Um, uh, when you, the first time you directed or co-directed Romeo and Juliet in, uh, in the school you're working in. Yes. That was your first time, like dealing with it from from I guess the other side of the table, so to speak. Correct. Yes, very much. Did you learn more stuff about it directing it than you had from watching it? Oh yes, very much so. I mean, I think I was still I was still very young, and my my I'm not necessarily one of these people who's very like oh I'm a Shakespearean scholar and I just kind of like read the text and we go with the feeling, right? You know what I mean? I don't get too in my head about it, which is which is not me putting down, like some people are very, very smart when it comes to Shakespeare. But I really enjoyed it. And what was very cool about that production is that we had a few friends of our, my, the, my co-director, John, and myself, we a few friends of ours who were teachers, but who also were like sort of involved in the local theater community. So we actually cast adults as the Capulets, the the Montagues, and the Prince. Who, oh, so you, you really had the like the real age split of like teenagers playing the kids. Exa- 
Exactly. And that, that was really John's idea. He taught at the high school. So he was the one who was trying to give these, you know, the actors the opportunity to do a Shakespeare play. Mm -hmm. And we really leaned into the teenage part. We sort of, we sort of had, it was sort of modern. We did take the nurse and make her younger. And we kind of edited the text to, to support that. So like the nurse and Juliet were wearing these like Catholic schoolgirl uniforms and then Romeo and his crew like had their own school uniform and they were just very clearly teenagers. Uh, one of the things that I like about how people treat Shakespeare in modern theater is people are not scared to adapt it and change it. Yes. Maybe just because it's in the public domain and there's no like rights company breathing down your neck. But I like that people say this is a, you know, hundreds of year old play. I'm going to make it work for us for now. And not try to right. try to do it like we're at the globe. I think that's the brilliance of Shakespeare is how easily adaptable it is to the times. I think I kind of think that's kind of what his purpose of writing them in the first place. He's like, this is for everybody for any time. He's like, I, I'm for t- I'm for seeing a world with iPhones, and <laughs> we need to be ready for that. <laughs> well, but he does. He puts in he puts in the high poetry, and he puts in you know, the dick jokes as well. And it's just, it's all there. And I guess that is what I mean when I'm like, I don't get too lofty in my, like when I'm working with Shakespeare, because I'm also like, cut, let's just cut it. We don't like this little bit. It's not serving our vision of like, again, it it, it really becomes a, a perfect vessel for other artists to tell their story. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And so I'm just like, yeah, let's cut it. Let's just cut the nurse being old. And she wasn't a wet nurse. She, (laughs) oh, I think the way we got around it in when the, when I directed that high school production is the, it's a costume party, right? The mask Mm -hmm. that they meet at, we made it a costume party and her costume was a nurse costume. (laughs) So then like anytime, anytime somebody referred to her as nurse, it was like tongue in cheek joking. Uh I love that. That's really good. It was fun. It's very Baz Luhrmann of you to be like, oh, this needs something else now. Right. Exactly. So when you did These Violent Delights, it was pretty heavily adapted, if I remember correctly. I mean, it, yes. it, it wasn't three hours long. Um, it was not. It, well, it was, a, it was a part of a festival mm-hmm. um, sort of format. So I think I had 90 minutes max. And I was adding songs, right? I'm, right. Add, I'm literally adding songs. So it was heavily adapted. We used the text, but it was heavily adapted. And it was one of those, pro- it was a passion project at the time. It had just been like going around in my brain for a while. I, I, I can't even remember. I just, again, it's my favorite play. So it was always sort of in there. I want to do it again. And maybe this came from just being like a younger Chicago theater artist, but I was like, I don't even want to deal with the parents because I didn't want to have to cast them age. Appropriately, <laughs> oh yeah. Right. It's harder to find older actors. Yeah. And that was sort of like my first hurdle in thinking about it was I wanted to focus very much on the youthfulness of it, which I think is kind of where pop music came in to mm-hmm. like, what's more, what's more youthful than pop music, but so much of act four and Juliet's journey is her parents and, mm-hmm. and the threats and, and, you know, it really drives a lot of her decisions. So that was like my first, like, can I, can I even achieve a complete story 
without the parents ever coming on stage. We talked about them, but, and I think I did. So I did the fraud again. I made the nurse more of a, a contemporary of Juliet. Mm-hmm. And the friar was a, clearly a little older than Romeo, but wasn't by any means. Like middle-aged. Right, right. He, you know, like he, he was still a friar and, you know, could could perform the marriage. I guess I kind of, we, he kind of played it like sort of a, like a youth pastor, if anybody is, you know. <laughs> I, I, I'm from Mississippi, so there were <laughs> lots of churches and youth groups and youth pastors right. in, my, in my upbringing. But I think it worked out pretty well because, gosh, this is getting into the nitty gritty. But, you know, there's this great scene in Act 4 where Lord Capulet gets like super mad. And he's like, I'd rather you be dead than you not marry Paris like I've decided. Yeah, right? it's, a, it's a hugely affecting scene. Right. right. But I couldn't, I couldn't do it because <laughs> <laughs> I had no papa. <laughs> um, so what we did, and of course, again, Shakespeare is this heightened language music is his heightened language, even when it's pop music and pop lyrics. And so I, because I was adding music, I think some gaps were filled in Mm. with that storytelling. Right. So we have this Shakespearean language butting up against literal like Kesha lyrics, Mm -hmm. which was really, (laughs) which was really fun. So, but I think what I did is that somehow I made the cut like Romeo and Juliet, they have their one night together. They say goodbye. He's been banished. And then maybe shortly, like the next scene is Juliet going to the friar and Paris. I like filled that in by having Paris be like, yes, Lord Capulet wants us to get married. I'm here to plan the way. You know what I mean? So we made that little jump. Oh, so you add you add Shakespeare text that you wrote? No, there's that scene. There is a scene where it's the scene when Juliet comes in and she's asking the friar for help. Right. And, and yeah. I mean, Paris is there, but I'm forgetting that you have to add anything to that to explain what happens in the missing scenes. I don't think so. Um, hang on. I, w- I wish I had a program. Like, okay, so they so they had their first night together. They sang Kesha's Finding You, I believe, mm-hmm. which was very sexy. Um, then they left in the mo- Maybe the nurse came in. Maybe I cut, maybe I really cut up that nurse scene, like before Juliet's mother, I think that's what I did. I think I focused on like after that fight and the nurse being like, you need to do what your dad is telling you to do. Mm -hmm. I I made it work somehow. It sounds clunky me talking about it, but I feel like it worked. (laughs) I remember it flowing as a, as a successful evening of theater. Well, I want to, I want to ask real quick um, because you mentioned the Kesha song. Was there any like overarching, like, thread or like theme i know you said pop music but was there any like specific artists or like was it all like a mishmash of different songs or was there I'm, a thread i'm glad you said that because that was also its own journey my i think my initial inspiration was what if because romeo and juliet is in the zeitgeist and it's referenced in so many songs my initial idea was i'm gonna find as many different songs that actually reference Romeo and Juliet and use those to tell the story. I quickly abandoned that, (laughs) (laughs) but but, you know, it just wasn't giving enough variety. It would just be Taylor Swift's love story in different. Right. It was like Taylor (laughs) Swift. And and also there, there are songs like, um, I did the pointer sisters fire, 
you know, oh. they have like one, it's what it's like a one that like Romeo and Juliet, Samson and Delilah. But again, <laughs> so many of the songs were that it was just like a quick reference and back to the song. So we were able to use some of them. And honestly, like the, the production could have been sponsored by my Spotify. What is it like recommended for you? Because uh-huh, like, uh-huh. like during that time, I would just like be listening to it. And then I'd be like, oh, this needs to go on my show. And I would just like drag it to my <laughs> show playlist. But, but, but like to start, what was the first song? Well, the first, uh, like, for example, um, Blue Oyster Cult. Yeah, Don't Fear the Reaper. I remember that. Don't Fear the Reaper. Yes. So they do, they mention Romeo and Juliet and that, but that is actually a song. I mean, Don't Fear the Reaper. Like it's talking about death and stuff. And so we use that going into the tomb scene. Mm-hmm. And like, again, so that was one of the songs that remained from like the original inspiration. Uh-huh. Like they reference Romeo and Juliet. I know. Oh, I remember talking about this with a friend and like songs that reference Romeo and Juliet. And she brought to me, is it panic at the disco? No, maybe no. What, what is it? Who sings shut up and dance? Oh, walk the moon. Thank you. (laughs) Okay. So, so she brought me walk the moon, shut up and dance, which was very popular at the time. I was kind of thinking this up and he says like, she's my Juliet discotheque something oh yeah it's a it's again throwaway line but it's all about just like having fun and partying and so that was in the show that was like at the ball Mm -hmm. and i had paris singing it being like yeah she's gonna be my girl and then in the staging of course she's like eyeing romeo Uh (laughs) the actors played their own instruments as well and so we I mean, I didn't have the rights to the songs. Um, (laughs) This is a fringe festival production. Right. Storefront theater. But we were able to, I had some very talented actor musicians and we kind of like made our own mashups. Oh, Annabelle. Annabelle Revit came in. She's so talented. And she did a couple of arrangements for us. Um, in terms of some vocal parts. And also I think she helped us make a mashup. Like maybe I had the idea and I was like, I want to go between these two songs, but she, she made it work. Um, So we had a lot of fun. So I believe we had, it was shut up and dance. Oh, it's, it was another Kesha song. Oh, die young. Oh yes. 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 Uh So you know, a little uh, on the nose, uh, a little uh, on the nose. <laughs> so, so the party started with Tybalt. Like, ho- again, we don't have Lord Capulet, so I was like, Tybalt, you're sort of hosting the party. He does the intro to Die Young. Everybody's happy, and then we are intercutting with Shut Up and Dance, which starts out Paris pursuing Juliet, but it ends up being, it ends up becoming Romeo. And Juliet Dan. Oh, and you know, there's that line. They were born to be to get bound to be, get together. Born so anyway, to be it was together. all. Yeah. Trust me, it was delightful. <laughs> I can account that it was delightful. Oh, I wish I could have seen this. Mm-hmm. It was so. It was so low budget, but so it was maybe one of the most satisfying theatrical experiences I've had. Mm-hmm. And we we really approached the the violence in the show, not very literally. Evan, do you remember this? I do not. Well, I mean, when like Romeo and Tybalt's big 
fight that ends mm-hmm. up with or and Mercutio dying. Oh, oh, see this. It's been years. Mm-hmm. Benvolio and Mercutio were a couple and the actor who was played Mercutio um, they use they, them pronouns. We didn't actually change the pronouns for Mercutio in the text. Again, we, we were never really like inserting new words or anything in the text, but it was very clear that that was like this, that this Mercutio's identity was such, do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so Mercutio and Benvolio you know, with a little bit of massaging, they were a couple and they were like dancing. And so then when Mercutio is killed and Benvolio has that speech later to the prince, I did have a prince who was still, but just wasn't, was like the same age kind of as everybody. Benvolio's like little monologue about here's what happened and Romeo did this. And it, it was like, it was like, Oh, but now this is, you're talking about your lover, right? Mm-hmm. Your lo- and so that was really fun. So we were trying to have some representation, some variety mm-hmm. in the story, not all heteronormative. Balthazar, who in the original text is really Romeo's like valet, like, yeah, you know, right. kind of his manservant. We Young. just made Balthazar. Right. We just made Balthazar a friend and I had Balthazar played by uh, a female actor and she was in love with Romeo, like unrequited love with Uh Romeo. And so one of my favorite scenes, I also, this was a friend of mine. She sang the snot out of this song was during the queen Mab monologue. We, she sang dreams by Brandy Carlisle. Mm-hmm. If you're familiar, which is really all about like, I am so in love with this person. I can only be with you in my dreams. And that's what I have. And so Balthazar was singing about Romeo and we're intercutting with Mercutio's monologue about Queen Matt. Also, that's kind of an unwieldy monologue. So it really helped, you know, move it forward. Right. Hey, um, so, so since you commented from falling in love with the Shakespeare text at a young age, adapting it down to an hour and a half plus songs must be really difficult. There must've been things that you were like sad to have to cut. Right. Oh, sure. Sure. But again, I mean, I think yes and no is actually the answer Mm -hmm. because my introduction was this Baz Luhrmann fast edit. Mm -hmm. My sword is a gun. (laughs) Um, I, I think that there was already some of that swirling around in my head, right? Like, like I remember, I think I also cut this from my version. I think many people cut this. Paris shows up at the tomb. Oh, yeah. Everyone cuts the Paris fight at the end. Right. Which is actually, I don't know. I mean, I could argue that it, it's very important. It also shows, like, how desperate Romeo is. You know, mm-hmm. he's supposed to be so upset that he's killed Tybalt, Mm -hmm. right? And then he's literally like at his love's grave and he has to kill a nut, like it's another body. Mm -hmm. Um, I already in my head was like, had this Hollywood shorter version that Mm -hmm. I loved. So some things were harder than others. Well, I think it's probably time that we talk about an adaptation that throws out almost all of the Shakespeare text and does, does whatever it wants. It does whatever it wants. It does. Are you ready to talk about N. Juliet? Yes.
Rousseau and Juliet. Yes. Yes. Ian, you have fast facts. I do. I do. And Juliet is, and this is from the Wikipedia. Okay. Is a 2019 coming of age stage musical. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so the show is from 2019. It features the music of Swedish pop songwriter, Max Martin. He's a producer. He wrote all the hits like Hit Me Baby One More Time. Oops, I Did It Again. Uh, it also features songs by the Backstreet Boys, Sync, Justin Timberlake, Ariana Grande. Big, big names, big, big stars. Celine Dion. Uh, the goddess herself. But he wrote all the songs. He Well, he produced all he the produced songs. He produced all the songs. Yes, he okay. produced all the songs. Uh-huh. The story kind of focuses on a what if. It's kind of what if story. It premiered in 2019 in Manchester, then moved to London's West End. Uh, it starred actress Miriam T. Glee, uh, David Bedell and Cassidy Jansen, all who uh, won Olivier's for their performances in Anne Juliet. The show is scheduled to have its North American premiere in Toronto this year, this June, as we are recording. Uh, The show has plans to move to Broadway as well as a future Australian production in 2023. So Anne Juliet is starting to have world domination. So Anne Juliet begins with William Shakespeare himself. And he is actually sort of like treating his wife and Hathaway. It's a little unclear, but to a night out to like see his new play, Romeo and Juliet. And as soon as she gets there, she's like, I don't like this play. I don't like this ending. Let's rewrite it together. So there's this conceit of the play is being written as it progresses. And we start with Juliet at Romeo, Romeo is dead, Juliet wakes up. And instead of killing herself, she's like, I got a life to live. And she goes to Paris and she meets, and she brings her nurse along and she brings friends. And there's some typical Shakespeare, like love triangle stuff happening. Juliet ends up engaged to another person very quickly, Francois, Frankie, to avoid being sent to a nunnery by her parents who have a few entrances. And then things really get shaken up at the end of act one, when Shakespeare doesn't like the direction of this new play and he brings Romeo back to life. So now Romeo is pursuing Juliet and she's also supposed to get married. And act two is really all about Juliet via Anne Hathaway or Anne rather Anne Hathaway via Juliet sort of proclaiming her, independence and her ability to write her own story you know she does not end up marrying i mean technically she's already married to bromeo but we won't go that but you know she doesn't end up marrying francois oh because francois is in love with her friend may we'll get into that a little bit more in our discussion but it's all it's very juliet ends up independent hooray we love it good for you um but it's also very stereotypically shakespearean in that like there are these Uh, lesser couples who are falling in love, but other couples have to get together for them to be together. Juliet's nurse, the whole history in Paris. And it's pop music. There you go. How'd I do? Yeah, I think think very good. I think the thing that's interesting about Anne Juliet is that even though Shakespeare has these comedies like Much Ado, where there is like an A couple and a B couple, Romeo and Juliet is a story where there is one couple and things don't end well. And Anne Juliet is a musical where there are four couples that are more or less happily together at the end of the story. So right. it's um, Romeo and Juliet who are who are trying to have a new start. There's kind of a have your cake and eat it thing where she like 
proclaims her independence and then also is like, but maybe Romeo question mark. Right. Um, Basically she's like, let's take it slow, baby. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Um, Which thank God. All that marriage stuff. First date. Right. And then there's um, Shakespeare and Anne Hathaway who have, who work through the rocky problems of their marriage by doing fan fiction of his play. And then there's the, the, I guess the two B couples. I think those are our two A couples. And then the two B couples are, Really, the A couple is Shakespeare and Anne Hathaway, and then right. the couples, arguably. Then it's Lance, who is a French man. He's a French general. A French general who has a relationship, an old relationship with uh, Juliet's nurse, who used to be the nurse in his household, and they get back together. And she gets a name. It's Angelique. Angelique. Um, and the other relationship is between... Uh, Lance's son, Francois. Lance's, Lance's son, Francois, and Juliet's best friend may who's a new character and hathaway goes romeo has been volio this is just that for juliet this is may who is a non-binary character yay yes that was very exciting so something that i want to start by talking about is our feelings so obviously you know this is a jukebox musical okay obviously you have wonderful uh, feelings of jukebox musicals but what are to our overall feelings of the jukebox musical as a genre because it's, it's a little bit like, especially oh. in the theater world, yeah. controversial. Mm-hmm. So I just want to get like everybody's feelings on yeah. it. Whew, I mean, that's a good question. I think, oh, I feel like I have complicated feelings. I also have complicated feelings. I mean, I think that like, like mindly boiled down to, if you pick a songbook that is too limited, then you're going to have to like bend your story around making the songs fit. And yes. and Juliet sets itself up as being campy fun primarily. So when they do that, when they like make long jokes that don't quite land to make one song make sense, which they do more than once. Yes. um, You forgive them for it in Anne Juliet. And I feel like they do, they do the work to make it work. I think this show shares a lot of DNA with, with head over heels. Mm -hmm. Um, But I'm going to be honest. And it's so funny because I mean, I literally sort of crafted when when I directed these violent delights, that was my own adaptation. I essentially, it was my own jukebox musical. I could just choose from any, any, right. So knowing that it took me a good 35 minutes of this to like go on the ride. Do you know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. I was kind of fighting with myself internally. Like, why are they putting this story with this song catalog? Yeah. You know what? I was just like, why? I wanted answers. (laughs) And they weren't, they weren't, I do think that this show, I think the the first quarter of the show, it, it's hard. They're setting up all of this exposition, right? And they're trying to like get you on board with like what the show is going to be. But I think it's a little, I rock, maybe it's just my opinion, but I do think it's a little rocky at first. Or maybe I was just being bitter. Well, I, I don't know. I don't know why it <laughs> took me so long to get on board. But I think that, that that feeling that you're describing is a feeling that I have with most Shakespeare's, that I spend the first scene like adjusting to the language, the storytelling language. Sure. Um, and, you know, I think that that you can have that with any musical. And it does, it really does like plunge you into the ice water very quickly. That's maybe a bad example. Plunge you into the pleasant, spongy, soapy bath or whatever. Very quickly right. of being like, like <laughs> everything is happening right now. Right. And, and we're singing a pop song that, and the lyrics don't 100% fit with what's happening. And it's okay that that's what's going on. Right. I mean, the, the show opens with Shakespeare singing Larger Than Life, mm-hmm. which I, I I love that. You know what I mean? Shakespeare, whose works have lasted. Like, 
that's fun to me. I think where my biggest issue, and maybe this comes from a love of Romeo and Juliet, you know, um, <clears throat> is that when we get into the rewriting of the story right now, we're, what is Juliet's story? We op- she Her first song is Hit Me Baby One, me- more, one more Time. Mm-hmm. Romeo's dead. She's ho- literally holding a dagger, if I recall correctly. She is, yeah. And she's singing, my loneliness is killing me. But for me, the audience, I haven't seen what Juliet has been through, like in Romeo. And Ju- Do you know what I mean? It was hard for me to connect with her state of mind and her emotional state. I, I just needed a little more, you know what I mean? Or context. Well, and, yes, the thing, yes. and they, they do the like one minute synopsis of Romeo and Juliet, the 32nd honestly, synopsis of Romeo and Juliet. Shakespeare's like, here's what's happened so far. And here's the new ending I've written. Um, and everyone's like, and everyone, all of his actors too are like, that's terrible. It's a terrible ending, which is interesting also because like we talked about this in one of the other episodes, but unlike Cinderella, which we covered last season, I think most modern people, when they're adapting Romeo and Juliet, say this is a story that does not need to be fixed. It's a story that that is beloved and fairly unproblematic and, and works as it is. And this story says, no, <laughs> like it does need to be fixed. There are problems with it and we're going to fix them all. And I, I wondered about, because this was playing in the West End, I was like, was there ever a time that this was playing at the same time as a traditional Romeo and Juliet of the Globe. And could you make a day of seeing a matinee of Romeo and Juliet of the Globe and then seeing this as like a second act to your Romeo and Juliet? Because it, I mean, it's very much a sequel to Romeo and Juliet more than it is a adaptation of Romeo and Juliet. Totally. I mean, some theater, some summer theater needs to get on that, like in rep, you know what I mean? Like yeah. when the rights are like, yeah. someone will do that. And, Romeo and Juliet and Juliet. Exactly. Um, <laughs> And it's Anne Hathaway, right? She brings up, like, let's do some rewriting. And then we do sort of get a payoff at the end of the show. Her reasons for wanting to rewrite, you know, because they're adding in this little bits of history about Shakespeare's relationship with his wife. She lived in Stratford, not in London, where he, this Shakespeare's character is sort of like, are you in love with your wife or are you in love with your art kind? Mm -hmm. Which is kind of a big question to squeeze into this very campy spectacle musical well that's why i call shakespeare and hathaway the only a couple because everybody else is is fairly two-dimensional in terms of like what kind of problems they're having and how they get solved whereas like there's a much more significant i don't know that i'm being prioritized in our marriage i don't think you think of me very well you write these romances where everyone's unhappy and i think that is a reflection of how you feel about us thing going on. Like it, it, there's a lot of, there is depth there. And, and even their ending is sort of like, we're staying together for now because it's a musical and this is a happy ending. True. Yeah. I got to say, like, I know you both, like you both said you had maybe some rocky starts with it. Start to finish. I love this. Because <laughs> <laughs> like, for me, I'm a huge proponent of the jukebox musical. I know very controversial within the theater community. I know everybody's like, what about original shows? Forget that. Like <laughs> I, I'm, I'm, I want every artist to have their own jukebox musical at some point. Like, <laughs> like I just want, I want to hear those songs musicalized. Like it's what I want. But you talk about that. Like, I think what a lot of people, when they say they don't like jukebox musicals, they're like, Oh, I don't like the story. And I think what this does successfully is, able to incorporate the music and also tell a pretty fulfilling story, especially with Anne and William. Mm-hmm. Like it, 
by the end, like you're rooting for them. You're rooting for pretty much every character, but for them specifically, you're like, I want you two to get together. I want you two to love yes. each other and to fix what has been broken. Like I want, like you want to shake Shakespeare and be like, you idiot. <laughs> like, but it also does the, the Mamma Mia thing that I think works in Mamma Mia, here we go again, where they're like, you like these songs. We're going to sing them because you like them. And the, there's going to be some story around it. And the first like six lines of the song will make sense. And the rest maybe won't. And it's just for right. fun. Right. You know, I kind of think a lot of the songs fit in with the story or like they integrated them pretty well. And like they, they fit with the feelings and what was going on with the plot. Like, yeah. I think this is one of the rare example. And I will fully say some jukebox musicals are bad and, like don't fit them in right well but like i think this is the example of fitting in the songs with the story like the good melding of the two i think the place where it works the least well for me is around the character of may who is uh non-binary but uses these like cis hetero love songs um and coming of age songs to express themselves and then like everyone around them has to do dialogue about whether or not what they're saying relates to their specific identity. So like the two examples are uh, May's first big solo is uh, not yet a- I'm not a girl, not yet a woman. Right, which could be read if you're coming in and you don't know going in that May is a non-binary character, could be read as a like like a trans journey, like a, like right. a sure. male to yeah. female trans journey. Um, and then Juliet has to have a, like a line being like, I don't see you as, as a boy or a girl. I just see you as- as May or something along those lines. And then they've added a line, which was not present when the show opened uh, to I kissed a girl. So there's a, um, when May and Francois start flirting, Francois has already, Francois is some flavor of queer and has already kissed Juliet and they're engaged for plot reasons. And so Francois is singing about May and singing I kissed a girl about May and I hope my girlfriend don't mind it about Juliet. And then May has an added line saying, you know, I'm not a girl, right? So, oh, that so was added. That, yeah, that added was added. Line. So in both cases, like the dialogue is fighting against what the lyrics are doing in the song and, and confusing what, what I think like a mass West End audience might already be confused about in terms of non-binary identity. Sure. Sure. I also thought, okay, I'm going to back up, but I'm coming back to May. Mm-hmm. We sing Show Me Love, Robin's Show Me Love is essentially a like road trip song, right? Yeah. It's Ju- Juliet and company traveling to Paris. And I, again, maybe this was just me being like, why this catalog with this story? Mm-hmm. But that, that song pairing with that moment seemed a little strange to me because Show Me Love seems more specifically about a specific, per- again, like you're saying, like these lyrics don't. Yeah. All the way makes sense. Show me love. Show me the city of love. Paris. It's a stretch. <laughs> <laughs> I think the ultimate stretch and, and the song that lost me the most is um, the Backstreet Boys song at the end. What's that song called? Everybody. Back- Everybody. Back- yeah. So I alluded to this earlier, but there's this like long setup for this joke to land, which yep. is that um, when Juliet first meets Francois Dubois, the joke is that she doesn't get the French pronunciation and calls him Frankie Du Bois. <laughs> right. <laughs> du Bois. Du Bois. Du Bois. And then that joke is repeated a few times. Multiple characters do the Du Bois joke. And two, so that when you get to the song Everybody by the Backstreet Boys, or as performed by the Backstreet Boys, 
And there's also been alluded to, this requires so much setup and the payoff is not that good. <laughs> the, it's also been alluded to that David Bedella, the, the uh, Lance's family, had a used to have a family band and they're trying to get the band back together for Frank for Frank's for Frankie's wedding. Right. And instead of finding other family members, the band becomes Francois, Lance, May, William Shakespeare, and Romeo. And Romeo. <laughs> and all posing as members of the Dubois family. And they sing Du Bois bands back all right. <laughs> yes. Yes. Yes, they do. But you know what? But by the time again, I agree with you. I don't think the payoff. It, they have to work real hard for that payoff. That they do. That is the, that feels like the most cuttable song to me. It's the one where I was I was like, um, really? Or I was just like, this is taking me out of of the flow of the story and the enjoyment of the experience. I don't. I I feel like by that point in the show, though, you're either on the ride or not. Yeah, do you know I'm, what I'm I mean? on the ride for the most part, but that song took me out a little bit. I was going to say the most cuttable song is probably the uh the mashup of problem by ariana grande and i can't feel my face by the weekend <laughs> yeah after, after the big love duet that was originally yes. written for the musical there's one there's at least one original song in this show written oh. it's when they are like floating in midair and they're talking about like let's give this one more try it's called one more try oh by okay Day, actually that makes sense because as they were singing, I was like, I don't know who this is. Am I old? I mean, I am, but, (laughs) (laughs) Um, but to go back to May and when I was still not on the ride yet, Mm -hmm. the scene, I mean, you know, it's the book for a jukebox musical, but the scene getting us into May singing, I'm not a girl, not yet a woman. Yeah. I thought was so clunky. Mm -hmm. Like May runs into Francois, makes eyes at Francois goes to the bathroom Mm -hmm. and is like, and now I'm sad because I'm never going to, there was, I just like, there was no context that care. That was like, like Oh yeah. There was like a bathroom attendant who was like, you have to make a choice. The boys are there. The women are there. Well, that's, Oh, you're right. You're right. That's the thing. Uh What is being alluded to maybe because I've watched the bootlegs so many times. (laughs) Um, is that if you listen throughout the entire, like before that song, May is being misgendered constantly. Mm. Yes. You know, yes. Some people are calling May ladies. Some people are calling May sir. Like May is being constantly misgendered mm-hmm. throughout the entire first p- part when they're in Paris. Mm. So it's a lot of those feelings plus being like, I want this guy to like me, but he'll never like somebody like me. Like mm. that whole thing. Okay. All right. You won me over. Yes. Oh, you know what I found interesting? I mean, I guess you've got to. I mean, the whole thing is very tongue in cheek, right? Mm-hmm. And yeah. and and meaning to be so. But they do have these lines of from Romeo and Juliet that keep popping up again in this. But it did yeah. feel it's sometimes they were just so heavy-handed. It was like they were winking at the audience, you know. Yeah. Like well, and you kind of got this effect where all of the couples are kind of Romeo and Juliet a little bit. Like, like the, the it's like they took the Romeo and Juliet arc or the first half of the arc, I guess, and just split it up amongst all the couples. Like um, Lance and Angelique get the, it was the lark, it was the Nightingale uh, interaction in bed together. Right. Uh, May and Francois have the eyes meet at a party instantly in love thing. Um, Romeo and Juliet are Romeo and Juliet, of course. 
what? (laughs) This show very much feels like it was written around showcasing the voice of who plays Juliet. Mm -hmm. You know, and, and that's fun. Every song was just like, oh, and now we're just going to enjoy this. Not many a song really propelled us forward that much more. I think my favorite transition from book to song, I Mm -hmm. heard one of the most successful ones is, so Juliet has met Francois at this ball. May has also met Francois, Frankie. Um, Mm -hmm. And Juliet is like, oh, Frankie, we have a lot in common. Your parents want you to do this. My parents want me to go to a nunnery. And they like, and I I think they've kid, they kid, anyway. But it's like the next morning and they're, they're having coffee. And he's like, maybe I should propose to you. And she goes right into, oops, I did it again. I love that one so much. It is so satisfying. It's yeah. so, well, and but and it what it does is the song itself is the punchline. And I think I think they try that in other places. And this one, it's like right on the target. It's like, mm-hmm. yep, that's how you do it. Because yeah. as soon as the song starts. The audience is in on the joke. They're yeah. laughing. You know, it's so well done. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a revelation. And there's a bunch of moments where y- you can hear the audience like react to a song starting by laughing or by um, like being appreciative, like clapping. Right. Which is a fun energy. You know, I mean, we worked on a show like that. We sure did. We sure did. We worked in a production of the musical Disaster, which is all music from the 1970s. And I, I brought my mom to see it and she was, she's, you know, was alive in that era. And it was so satisfying for her to see how those songs would, and some of the songs I didn't know going into it, um, how they were recontextualized. I and mean, that's why, right. that's why jukebox musicals work, right? Because right. It, it, you don't have to get familiar with a new melody. But then on the flip side, you have this character named May, who mm-hmm. is in a love triangle. Yeah. And we go through the whole show and then May gets to sing... It's gonna be May. Mm-hmm. And there is this part of you that's like, you get it, but you're also like, Ugh. like you're, yeah. it's like sort of dad joke vibes. Yeah, totally. <laughs> well, and there's two sort of dad jokes about May's name. The other one is that Anne Hathaway inserts herself into her play that she's writing as a new right. character named, named April. And Shakespeare's like, who's April? And she's like, get it, April, May, and Juliet. Right. It's fascinating to have. Anne Hathaway's self-insert character in the narrative all the time. Yes. They're playing this game where um, they're passing the quill back and forth. Whoever's controlling whatever's going on has the, has the quill. And it's used in some ways that very like deus ex machina that like yes. they can't get into a party and then like, and waves her quill like a magic wand and then they can get into a party. And it's like, why have the obstacle? You know, like what, what right. did we learn? But there's this moment early in the second act where she breaks the quill in half. And it's very much the like narrator getting eaten moment in Into the Woods yes. where, where Shakespeare's like, who knows how things will turn out now? <laughs> like, but, but then it just goes nowhere. Like everything's kind of fine. Right, right. I mean, for a while before she sings, you know, at, at that wedding, when the wedding kind of gets ruined and everything, mm-hmm. that's kind of the big moment where it's like, oh no, what's going to happen? So it's kind of putting in control, like, okay, Juliet, like, this is your moment. Like, what do you want to do? And I, I, I think, I think that's kind of powerful. I think that's why I think yeah. Stronger is powerful at that moment. Cause she's like, I'm making this decision. Mm-hmm. I need to like 
step away and need to really think about this, but I don't need you. Like, right. like he says to her parents, like, what kind of parents would do this? You know, what kind of friends would do this? And Romeo, I don't need you. Like, Which is right. interesting because they also age up Juliet. <laughs> Very early on, they're like, we are all in our 20s. <laughs> right. And, and it's funny. You know what? With jokes like that, when they make, like, those are very satisfying Yeah, for, uh, for people. I spent like the nurse is talking about, and I'm sorry, I'm interrupting you, but I was, <laughs> the no. nurse has this bit where, you know, she worked for friend Frankie's family. Lan- yeah. Lance is the dad's name. Yeah. yeah. She worked for them. And then she went to Verona and she has this monologue that she's like, there was so much drama because I was in love with you and you were married. So I went to work for this other family who turned out to be the most dramatic family, <laughs> killing other people and this and that. And it, it's very funny. You know what? That actor who's playing Angelique, I mean, truly. She's the only one from the West End cast that's going to the North American premiere. Well, and how. Way to go. Because <laughs> truly, what a delight. And is doing a lot of comedic heavy lifting. But but also I think that that it feels very true to Shakespeare's version of the nurse without being like shackled down by it. Like in that early narrative, she's delivering lines that are similar to lines she delivers in the play. And you're like, oh, okay, that's who we know. And she continues on that way. And the nurse also does a lot of comedic heavy lifting in the play, or Ken. Yeah. Very true. Very true. Also just proving our point that the nurse is the best character. <laughs> Going back to this Quill thing. I did, I think really the end of act one, all the whirlwind of plot that's happening really won me over. And then in Shakespeare, the character is not liking where Anne is taking this new play. Yeah. Um, Also like I have to aside as a playwright who has had conversations (laughs) with audience members about like plays in progress, there was this part of me that's like, oh yes, I get it. I, you know. um, but so so Anne is offstage having a costume change and Shakespeare's like, I'm really going to fuck things up. And he says, if Juliet doesn't die, why does Romeo have to die? And now I can't even remember. And then Romeo descends from the ceiling. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's my life. And then the whole second act is like a send up of Romeo's character. Yeah. This is, this is, I think, the thing that's fascinating about the, like, Shakespeare revisionism that is happening here is that, like, you alluded to the fact that at the end, Juliet's arc sort of boils down to her, like, making a choice for herself, mm-hmm. which is not necessarily a problem that I think I have with the original story, because I think she does make some choices for herself in the original story. Um, and also, when they reintroduce Romeo... You know, Romeo is kind of the main character of Romeo and Juliet in some ways. And he's kind of like, like he's rash and impulsive, but I think we're broadly on his side. And this one is like, it's okay to hate Romeo. <laughs> like it's okay. Right. That Romeo is kind of a whiny. What's the line he has? Oh, wait, I, I wrote it down. Quote, he says, all I've ever been was a sexy young man with a tight body and a lot of feelings. <laughs> <laughs> and I think that's so great. Yeah. And especially, especially as the person who's also directed Romeo and Juliet, you know, and had conversations with actors where it's like, man, Romeo is being such a downer. Totally. We haven't even mentioned, yes, diva. We haven't even mentioned, I enjoyed this. Go back to the beginning. Juliet does not die. Mm -hmm. She's bummed that Romeo is dead. And then she realizes that Romeo has had, which it kind of tracks a little bit. It tracks with 
the original text, right? Mm-hmm. Rosaline is there saying, oh, I'm so sad we dated. And then there are these string of other people who are like, oh, yeah, I Romeo came up to my balcony. Romeo said ah. this, said that. And it's just like, oh, Juliet, were you taken in by a player? Uh-huh. Right. Uh, also, people of all different genders. Romeo got, got around. Romeo like, got around. Male, female. Romeo went to Paris. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, Maybe non-binary. Who knows? Like, yeah. But that that was kind of fun. Okay, wait. How do y'all feel about Anne Hathaway towards the end? She sings. It's the Celine song. That's the way it is. Ian, how do you feel about that? <laughs> it's so beautiful. <laughs> I love. I love anyone singing Celine Dion, and especially that song. And turning that song, which is like an upbeat, like poppy poppier song into like a beautiful ballad about like you know love is tough this is tough what you're going into and i get it like this is not going to be easy and sure it was a good moment too for anne hathaway's character i think we really start to be i mean we've known as the audience right like this is really all of this revision is about her Mm -hmm. but it really becomes clear there but i i kind of wanted them to make go even further in the ballad direction because I can only hear Celine <laughs> in my mind. Do you know what I mean? Um, and I don't think that actor is trying to do a Celine impression at all. Um, but there was this part of me that's like, I'm distracted <laughs> <laughs> because I hear Celine. In my mm, right. Hit me baby. One more time is already a complicated song because like I said before, like the original, the first, you know, six lines or so make sense for the situation she's in, but even Britney Spears was like, the song is based on a mistranslation. Like the title, the main phrase of the song is because the person who wrote it didn't know English very well and, and mistranslated the idiom he was trying to use. Like it doesn't mean anything. Right, right. Although Ian, you were mentioning Stronger. I mean, I think that song is literally in that spot so that she can sing in Stronger, my loneliness ain't killing me no more. Which again, I'm like, I understand the reasoning, but I'm just like, is it worth it? <laughs> do, do you know what I, I wanted more from Stronger. From what I've heard through interviews and stuff, this show had so many different iterations of songs and different like song orders. And I feel like in a world, maybe in a perfect world, maybe not, but in a different universe, Stronger was the song that like was the big finish instead of Roar by Katy Perry. You know, I, I, I feel like- We kind of get three endings for Juliet. Yes. I, I, I kind of wish that Stronger was the pick, not, not just because Roar is not one of my favorite songs, but mm-hmm. it feels like that is the song that's like really hitting into the point of Juliet's arc and Juliet's story. Yeah. Like it's not the song choice itself that I, I was disappointed with. It was just sort of like, what that song was doing in that uh, it just it felt like a missed opportunity mm-hmm. i think is what you're saying it, like if it could have been as big as roar is roar after that yeah roar is after a cup a cup there's a couple more songs in between but roar is like the big like this is this is me i am embracing who i am i am going forth and forging my own destiny and you're gonna you're gonna hear it you're gonna hear right. me roar mm-hmm. right Nothing's going to stop us now. And it's, it's not disappointing that the destiny she chooses to forge is being open to Romeo coming back into her life. 
Uh, although I think like that relationship is the one that's like played the less, the, the least strongly, because I think it's confusing how we as the audience are supposed to feel about Romeo and Juliet in yes. this show. It's sort of like they want him to be the butt of these jokes, but then they're all like, there's a, a half, they half, a halfway attempt to be like, oh, but what the connection they have is real. But we don't ever see it. I mean, the, right. that, that is one of the places where you really need to have foreknowledge of Romeo and Juliet coming into this, uh, which, you know, I think people are familiar with it, but in Romeo and Juliet, you want them to end up together. In this, you're like, I don't, I, I don't care either way, actually. Like, I, I right. think it's fine. I think it'd be fine if there were only three couples at the end, but I think there's some like musical theater rule where it's like, I guess they should be. <laughs> and then the like the feminist twist, quote unquote, is that they start calling it Juliet and Romeo. So uh, that's a win for feminism, I guess. Right. You know, and the signs move. Yeah. I, but but then because she wants it that way, it's just it's just silly good fun. It is. Right, yeah. <laughs> and that's the thing is is I can I can appreciate it as silly good fun. I don't need it to change the world and I don't need it to be like Romeo and Juliet dramaturgy on stage. Well, if I may say, I think the heart of that point is when Anne is like, what if the ending is about just two people having a conversation, talking, right. and just working things out and be, having a new beginning? It's not an ending. It's just a new beginning. Mm-hmm. I think that's what what I like about that moment. And what I think is so important is that it's just these two people talking. They're kind of starting over and they're going from point A being like, hi. I'm this right. person. Like, let's let's try this out. Let's see. Well, and Shakespeare even said, I mean, the people who put the show, to, you know, they clearly know a lot about Shakespeare too. Where, you know, he and Anne Hathaway are like, oh, I'll try and do better for now. And then he kind of, I can't remember if he says it to her or to the audience. He's like, but I'm I'm going to go write some really dark shit after this. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? He's like, I'm maybe still, you know, not going to be good to you. <laughs> well, and, and the thing is, like, there are so few historical facts that we know about the relationship between uh, Shakespeare and Anne Hathaway. You know, I mean, we just watched Shakespeare in Love, which sort of takes the premise that when he was in London, he was effectively single because he, you know, left her alone for years at a time. And this show bases part of her frustration weirdly on what Shakespeare left her in his will when he died, which like none of those characters could have known, obviously. Right. <laughs> but they're like fighting about the fact that, cause this is like the one thing we know about Anne Hathaway is that when Shakespeare died, he left her his second best bed in his will. What is that? What is that? Yeah. What is that? Will? We should try to get him. <laughs> <laughs> easy get. It's probably an easy get. Yeah. He's bit free. <laughs> Billy Shakes, if you're listening. <laughs> I did enjoy, she gets this moment in Hathaway at the end where she's saying, you know, you finally are writing sort of this sweeping love story. And then I get to the end and it's a tragedy and they can't like, how does that translate to your feelings about me and us? And, mm-hmm. you know, she's like, it feels like a premonition. It feels like you are wanting this to end. Like you want this to end in tragedy. Mm-hmm. Right. Ugh, playwrights, artists. Am I right? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, very much like, what Shakespeare is going through in this story, like his arc is the arc of Sunday, the park with George. Like you could write a, a much more serious musical dealing with these themes. And I like that this musical isn't all fluff and has like a nod to depth um, in it because I like a little meat with my fluff in terms of theater, but not in terms of uh, culinary experience. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. I, I agree. I think, 
I do. I want, I just want to know like who was in the room where it was like, we have this catalog and we're going to go Shakespeare. I just want to know who made that decision because mm-hmm. I'm fascinated. I'm just fascinated by it. Well, and I think there are so many, like, obviously you do Romeo and Juliet for the name recognition and for the fact that like it already has this airiness of the love story before the tragedy happens. But there are so many other plays of Shakespeare's that could use a rewrite or a sequel more, you know? Yes. <laughs> so, I mean, that's the thing that I keep coming back to is this idea of like, why is Romeo and Juliet the one you thought was like a problematic story that had to be fixed? I don't think they thought of it as problematic. I think it's just one of those things where you're taking one of the most popular stories of all time. It's a story that's recognizable. You no, know. But I think there's an explicit critique of Romeo and Juliet. They're saying another woman killing herself for a man and not making choices and being passive. And um, Do y'all remember those? Oh my gosh, these videos are so old now. Um, the sassy gay friend yes. video. This truly felt like the sassy gay friend came in and said, let's write a show. (laughs) It's very on that same line. Yes. Yeah. What are you, look at your life, look at your choices, go to Paris, start anew. Overall, I would happily buy a ticket and sit in person and watch this. Yeah. I think I would too. I want to see this show 10 times. I want to be in this show. I want, I just want to be encompassed in Anne Juliet. Anne Juliet, people, if you're listening, please hire me. It's fun. It's fun. It's probably a fun show to be in. It's different, but it, it has also a very six feeling to it. Does it not? Oh, I mean, the, the six is the, absolutely the show I was thinking about when I was thinking about a nod to, to depth. I mean, six does that. Six is a fluffy show that has this one moment late in the show where you're like, oh, there's, there's depth there and there's like meaningful hurt and emotions under that. Right. And what it makes you- the show like, um, and I think the same is true here. Like I think the show wouldn't work without the core of Anne's serious complaints about her relationship with her husband. And I think that's what makes a perfect like jukebox musical and honestly a perfect musical, you know, you can have all the fluff, but you need to have that core that really brings it together mm-hmm. and really brings the meat and bones to it. And I think that's why I love this show so much is that it has, it has it all. It has the fluff. It has the fun. It has the costumes that look like they're Elizabethan music video, like MTV style. And then it has that beautiful core in the middle of these two people. And really it relates to Romeo and Juliet and the story of these two people that are still trying to figure everything out and still trying to figure out their relationship and wanting to work out their relationship, but they're, they're they're still trying to figure out how. And I think it's it's a beautiful story. I think they could probably cut about 10 minutes at least. <laughs> I agree. But overall, at first I was like, why? Why? I don't know why. And then I and it was late last night and I was watching it and I got to the end of act one. And then I was hooked and I was like, oh man, it's really late. But like I have to my plan was to watch act two this morning. And I was like, no, I need I need to now I need to know. Uh-huh. Now I'm in it. My closing thought is I don't think Shakespeare is going away anytime as much as I am a new, like new works, new plays, support playwrights. But I think Shakespeare is just this sort of seemingly bottomless well of inspiration for work to be made. And I've certainly seen recontextualizations of Shakespeare plays that I liked less. And I like that this one throws out the whole book and just says, 
you already know Shakespeare. We're not going to try to adapt that. We're just using that as a jumping off point and telling a new story with, with a bunch of new characters. I mean, it is fresh and interesting um, right. in a way that, that sometimes Shakespeare adaptations are not. And, and again, maybe this is why I eventually got really on board with the show. It's not taking the original text as like, sacred right mm -hmm. it's it's so you know it's like let's just throw it let's literally throw out the parts that don't serve us yeah and bless you know they should because right. it, was, it was written hundreds for of years ago about a different time and for a different time and you know we're not in that time exactly exactly yeah. and as um, last season it the point of storytelling is to keep adapting it and keep changing it and keep going forth with it all these years. I mean, original stories are so far and few in between that we kind of... I don't know about that. I guess they're, they're, original stories. they're far and few in between. But, I disagree. But I, I think... That's a that, different episode. A different episode, <laughs> but I think that's why, you know, why, why, we, why we do this and why stories like this are fun. Well, Kate, thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. This was delightful. I was reminded of my love for Romeo and Juliet and the theater. You know what? We needed this. Did you start this podcast in the pandemic? Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I, I see why. Like, like this, <laughs> we need, we need it. We need to remember the lot, the, the world out there Yeah. <laughs> and the art that we do. Do you have anything to promote? I am a playwright, and if you're familiar with the new play exchange, it's a website where playwrights can put up their work, and I have plays on the new play exchange. My full name is Kate Leslie. I have a website that's so out of date, but it has a few pictures for, of these violent delights on it. <laughs> but yeah, no, like my new play exchange, like I would love it if one person wanted to read a play that I've written. Uh -huh. <laughs> that would be worth it. Actually, you know what? It did, this was worth it anyway. That would be a cherry. So this week we looked at Anne Juliet, which is sort, of, sort of feels like a sequel to the Romeo and Juliet story. Uh -huh. If you join us again in two weeks' time, we'll be covering the book Master of Verona, which is a prequel to the Romeo and Juliet story, exploring the origins of the uh, Montague Capulet feud. I well, look forward to that. I'm excited. And we'll see you then. Bye.